Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Jane King didn't mind taking the bus, not even at night when the characters in downtown Los Angeles could admittedly get a little sketchy. She sometimes had to fend off unwanted attention that comes with the territory when you're a tall, slender, beautiful blonde, but she knew how to take care of herself. She had just missed a bus, so she planted herself on a bench to wait for the next one. It was November 10th, 1977, and Jane had just finished an acting class at one of the Church of Scientology buildings. Soon, a young man approached and sat non-threateningly at the other end of the bench. How long do we have to wait? He politely asked Jane. Probably a little bit since we just missed the last one, she said. The two started talking. The man said he was new to the area and seemed relieved to have found someone friendly to chat with. People were nice in L.A., but there were some weirdos too, he confided. You can't be too careful. Then he and Jane started talking about Jane's acting class, which of course led to some questions about Scientology, the religion founded by science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard, whose book Dianetics was at its core. The man said he was curious about learning more. Then a car approached. Kenny, you need a ride? A voice boomed. The man talking with Jane peered into the car and said, hey, wow, what luck, that's my cousin. Sure, I'd like a ride. Oh, and hey, we can give you a ride, too, if you don't live too far away. I mean, I don't want to put my cousin out, so if you're going far, I'm sorry, but if it's pretty close. Jane hesitated, but then said, actually, it's not that far at all, if you don't mind. Then she got in the car. Her raped and strangled body would be discovered two weeks later. At the time, no one but the killers knew that the 28-year-old had been the sixth in a series of victims that would terrorize L.A., pit psychiatrists against each other and lead to one of the longest and most controversial criminal trials in California history. From the very beginning, something seemed a little off about the baby Nicholas and Francis Bianchi adopted. Of course, all babies seem a little off to first-time parents, and this one, a boy the couple named Kenneth, had already had a rough start in life. He'd been born May 22, 1951, in Rochester, New York, to a mother who did sex work and suffered from alcoholism. She had put her baby up for adoption two weeks after birth. When Nicholas and Francis adopted him, he was three months old. This is Ted Schwartz, author of a book called The Hillside Strangler. Francis Piccioni had always wanted a child, loved kids adored Ken, was terrified something horrible would happen to him. Any parent can relate to that to some extent, but it seems Frances took it a bit further than most. She was terrified he was going to get sick and die, so she's constantly having him checked. Anytime Kenny wasn't feeling well, his mom was quick to get him to a doctor for treatment. But this was about more than just overreacting to boo-boos. 
For example, Kenny had trouble potty training, so his mother took him to get checked out for that. The problem just kept getting worse, to the point that Kenny started just involuntarily peeing at humiliating times. Francis and the doctor came to blame urinary tract infections. Sometimes, Kenny would stare off into space. A doctor diagnosed Kenny with petite mal seizures, sometimes called partial seizures. Not everyone with epilepsy falls to the ground and shakes. Sometimes they appear to simply space out. As the diagnoses came in, Frances was exceedingly patient with her child and assured him, these things aren't your fault. On one hand, most parents can relate to this to some degree. Frances didn't want her son to feel shame for something that was out of his control. But some felt Frances went too far. Forensic psychiatrist Helen Morrison in a documentary about the case. He became almost a god to his mother. He, he was the, he was her life. This overprotective, over-smothering really had to affect his ability to feel that he was a strong and powerful person. As Kenny got older, his behavioral problems became more pronounced. Sometimes he would fly into fits of rage. He would lie incessantly over matters big and small. It was exhausting for Frances, who took her son to see a psychiatrist for treatment. Kenny was only 10 when he was diagnosed as having passive-aggressive personality disorder. If you're familiar with such disorders, this one is also known as negativistic personality disorder. It's not among those officially listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders anymore. It had once been included in the Cluster C types along with other anxious or fearful disorders, but it was dropped years ago and isn't one of the 10 listed specific personality disorders in the DSM-5. Still, the label exists and refers to someone prone to procrastination and stubbornness. It seemed to fit Kenny to a T because it's generally believed to develop because of an insecure or unsafe childhood environment. It's more typical that you would see it in someone born to alcohol or drug-addicted parents, or maybe to a kid who never felt safe expressing anger or frustration. It didn't seem as though Kenny was punished for his angry outbursts, but him expressing himself seemed to routinely lead him to a doctor's office which in turn led to some diagnosis or another. And with every label a doctor slapped on Kenny to explain his behavior, it seemed Kenny grew more and more comfortable with the concept that he wasn't to blame for anything. He wasn't a hot-headed jerk. He had a disorder. I think that's very possible that in treating him and helping him and checking him, she went way too far. All throughout his medical records, you see these comments about how uh, Mrs. Piccioni... He's referring to mom, Francis. ...is a very troubled woman and needs help, and so is the child. Somebody needs to do something about this child. It isn't as though Francis was completely bamboozled. I've met that type of mom, too, the type that somehow manages to see zero fault in her obviously troubled kid. Anki's mother told me that he he always lied, that he, he lied from the time he was young. This is Roger Bourne, who would eventually help prosecute Kenny. She said when he was like six or seven, they went to a grocery store or a supermarket. And they got home and they got out of the car and stuff started falling out of Bianchi's pocket. 
like candy and cookies or something. And she, of course, rhetorically asked him, where'd you get that stuff? Because she hadn't paid for it. And Kenny absolutely denied he knew how it got in his pants. Now, on the surface, this might seem trivial. Kids lie all the time. I swore up and down I didn't take my bunk mate's corn chips in, like, fourth grade summer camp when I did. And if you're listening, Leah Burden, I still feel bad about that lie to this day. I owe you 50 cents and an apology. Most people lie every day, multiple times a day. As a matter of fact, the research has shown that 97% of the population admit to lying on a daily basis And the researchers concluded that 3% were lying about their lying. The difference here is that Bianchi and other individuals are pathological liars. They're not telling white lies to exaggerate their importance or to get out of wrongdoing. They're lying when they don't have to lie because to them, lying is a form of control and domination. As one offender told me, why tell you the truth and you could hold it over me? I'll lie about it and hold it over you. That's a big difference. It's not great to lie, period, of course, but it's one thing to lie because you're worried you'll get in trouble or you'll lose a friend or you'll be expected to replace the bag of corn chips when you know you don't have the money to do it and you're too embarrassed to admit that. It's another thing to lie so you can lord control over someone. I mean, really, don't a lot of the world's evils come down to someone being controlling? Now, Bianchi figured out early on that one way to gain control of other people was to be outwardly very nice. He more easily got what he wanted that way. And if he didn't initially get what he wanted, he could often charm his way into changing someone's mind if he needed to. He wasn't dumb. Around age 11, he was given an IQ test that put him in the above average or superior intelligence range. Despite this, he didn't do well in school academically. Criminologist Jack Levin in a documentary. He had a bad temper. So, you know, he was just simply not doing well as a child. He suffered uh, undoubtedly. And I think what happened as a result is that he developed a profound sense of powerlessness. When Kenny was 14, his adopted father, Nicholas, dropped dead at work. One story goes that Francis made her son wear his dad's actual shoes to the funeral, and that because Kenny's feet were literally too small to fill his dad's shoes, his feelings of inadequacy must have been overwhelming. I'm not sure I buy this. It seems a bit simplistic, and it seems to put a lot of blame on a woman who apparently had some significant mortality issues even before her husband dropped dead on her. I imagine she was a mess after that, and hell, maybe she thought it wasn't a huge deal to have her kid wear the only pair of men's dress shoes she had in the house. Regardless, Nicholas's death did seem to mark a point of no return in Kenny's life, which, if you believe he'd already struggled with feeling out of control and powerless, kind of makes sense. He didn't connect much with kids in school. He would seem to flit from group to group. He never seemed comfortable around people, and he just became more and more of a loner. Soon after he graduated high school, he decided a career in law enforcement might suit him, so he signed up for some related courses, including psychology, at a local community college. He also applied for a job at the local sheriff's office, but didn't get it. He found this rejection stung a bit. And so he quit taking those police-focused classes and instead got a job working as a security guard, allowing him the power he craved without all that pesky police academy. 
It turned out he liked the gig a lot. Being a security guard also gave him the opportunity to steal. Although he was never arrested for theft, he was forced to change jobs frequently. Come January 1976, Bianchi was spinning his wheels. His mother, Frances, reached out to her nephew, Angelo Bono, who lived in Los Angeles. Bono was older and more established, and Frances thought the change of scenery, moving from Rochester to L.A., might do her son some good. Bono wasn't thrilled with the idea of having some younger guy, Krampus-style, but he agreed to let Bianchi stay in his house in Glendale. Angelo was also a New Yorker by birth. He'd been born in 1934 in Rochester to Francis's brother, also named Angelo. The nephew was Angelo Jr. Jr.'s parents weren't married long. They divorced in the late 1930s, after which Angelo moved with his mother, Jenny, to Glendale, where he and an older sister were raised in a small house with a single mom who struggled to keep them afloat. Angelo went to school, but barely learned to read and write. Like the cousin he'd taken years later, Angelo didn't do well in school. Unlike his cousin, Bono didn't bother to stay for a degree. He dropped out at 16 and started a criminal life even earlier than that. He was arrested for stealing cars, but more problematically... This is a kid that was oversexed, always making overtures to the girls. Uh, He was a sexual predator from early on, from very early on. That's Bob Grogan, a former Los Angeles police detective who had come to know Bono and Bianchi far better than he would have liked. Despite his lack of formal education, Angelo did well enough for himself working on cars. He got jobs working in garages, which eventually led to an interest in auto upholstery. Over the years, he'd done well enough for himself that he opened his own business attached to his house where he'd fix up cars. He was known as a ladies' man, despite being a pockmarked, smarmy-looking fellow with bad teeth. He apparently had enough bravado and magnetism that he had no trouble getting dates. Or wives. He had a few of those, too. But they didn't tend to last long, in part because Bono was always on the lookout for someone younger. Like, too young. This guy was gross. He was also not a fan of birth control. By the time he was 35, he had at least eight children. He was brutal to everyone in his life, especially the women. He had a preference for anal sex and could not care less if his partner wasn't keen. In fact, one of his wives said that when she resisted the act, he forced it on her in the living room in front of their children. But the shop he opened in 1975 did great business. He did one of Frank Sinatra's cars. He did a car belonging to one of the Supremes. He usually had some Rolls-Royce-type cars or limousines around that he was doing. When his cousin came to live with him, Bono was living alone, though he had plenty of company. When Bianchi arrived, he was floored by and envious of Angelo's success with women. He wanted in on the action. Now, compared to Angelo, Kenny was a hunk. He was younger, fitter, more traditionally attractive. He also came across as far nicer. Angelo was basically abusive, which is why his shtick worked on younger, less experienced women. These were girls, really, many of whom were unhealthily drawn to the bossy, overbearing man who mistreated them. Kenny, on the other hand, came across as aw shucks and sweet. But the two shared a baseline of sociopathy and misogyny that would prove to be a horrifying mix. 
Having watched several documentaries and read books and newspaper coverage of this case, I want to address a couple of things. For starters, this story is usually told as a tale of hardened but gold-hearted police heroes doing whatever it took to stop two ruthless killers. And those officers absolutely deserve applause for the hard work and dedication they put into this case. Let's remember that things are rarely black and white in life. Some of the misogyny espoused by Bianchi and Bono is actually echoed in stories about the cops who took them down. A little bit of language is coming. Feel free to skip ahead a few seconds. I will not villainize these cops, but I do want to also say up front, it's not okay to refer to women as whores and cunts, no matter the context. Those are gender-specific insults that dehumanize women. Dehumanization is what leads to assholes justifying the slaughtering of other human beings. So I did not find charming the anecdote in author Darcy O'Brien's book about this case, describing one of the lead detectives telling Angelo Bono's female defense lawyer that she was an unethical C-word. Nor did I find it edgy when the cops casually referred to sex workers as whores, but obsessed nightly over the innocent non-sex workers who also died. Okay, that part's done. This next part will be quicker and not as angry. The stories, and indeed this episode, inevitably spend more time talking about the killers than the victims. And the impact of this case centers around the killers, how they came to be, how they were caught, and how they tried to get away with it. But their victims should be better known, and I'll do my best here to put the emphasis where it belongs accordingly as I explain how their lives ended. Just please remember, the end of these lives weren't the most noteworthy part about their existences. They had friends and family and hopes and dreams, and most heartbreaking of all, no matter who they were, they had potential. And that potential was ended in violence. Bono and Bianchi didn't start with murder. Their first scam, as they called their various schemes, whether those schemes were to make quick cash or snuff a human life, was to trick a couple of young women into becoming sex workers for them. Bianchi had an idea. He was near Hollywood, and surprise, surprise, lots of people in the vicinity had dreams of becoming famous. Stories of ingenues discovered at local soda shops were rampant, after all. But the modeling jobs promised never existed, and supposed kindnesses Bianchi and Bono offered the first victim of their scheme lured her into a sex trafficking trap. Her name was Sabra Hannon. As Bianchi tells it in this police interview, the idea was Bono's to start. He wanted to get her into an outcall service. By outcall service, he means that a customer wanting to pay for sex would place a call for a worker to come to him. In-call means the opposite. The customer comes to the sex worker's location. He knew some people, uh, some guy that owned a paper company that used to hold card parties. The guy used to have girls go into the trick during the party. And uh, he wanted to run Sabra to that. If Sabra refused, he beat her, but carefully. He says, you know, just take a towel and wet it and hit her. And uh, he says it wouldn't leave any marks. The two convinced Sabra that they had mafia contacts who would kill her if she tried to flee. They had cop friends, too. This part of their tale surely bolstered by the fact that they would sometimes force Sabra to work sex parties that included police officers and other city bigwigs as customers. After a while with Sabra, they told her they'd let her retire if she found herself a replacement. So she did. 
But instead of freeing Sabra, they kept both women prisoners. Now, it took months, but the women did manage to escape. Both of them fled the state. In response, Bianchi and Bono escalated tactics. Their new scam was to go cruising. On the surface, making it sound like they'd just go out looking for hookups. In reality, the goal was to find a woman, rape her, kill her, then drop her body somewhere in L.A., nude and posed. The first two victims were sex workers. Yolanda Washington was 19 years old. She'd served as a go-between with the cousins and another woman who sold them a list of names belonging to men who frequented sex workers. It so happened that the list Bono and Bianchi bought wasn't what they had hoped for. It was an in-call list rather than an out-call, meaning that the guys wanted to come to the women's place rather than invite them to their own. And that, coupled with the escape of their indentured sex workers, apparently led them to feel justified in killing Yolanda, who'd personally done nothing at all to affront them. Her body was found October 17, 1977, on a hillside near the Ventura Freeway. Los Angeles Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno, who would work with Bob Grogan on the case for years, noted that Yolanda's corpse was clean before being dumped, and marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck indicated she'd been tied up and strangled. These characteristics would surface on one victim after another, eventually becoming the calling card of the so-called hillside strangler, as the newspapers eventually dubbed the cases. Note that from the beginning, however, the singular strangler was a misnomer. Police believed from the start that there likely had to be two killers involved because there were never drag marks near the body or post-mortem abrasions even when the corpses were left in hard-to-reach spots. Police figured these corpses had to have been carried by at least two people. The next victim was 15-year-old Judith Miller. She was a runaway who sometimes did sex work and apparently was propositioned by Bianchi and Bono. After she agreed to the work, they flashed stolen police badges, told her she was under arrest, handcuffed her, and then took her to Bono's house where they raped and strangled her before leaving her nude body on display on Alta Terrace Drive. Police discovered very little physical evidence, though they did find a piece of white fiber on one of Miller's eyelids. Now, the cousins' quote-unquote success posing as police officers with Judith Miller led Bianchi and Bono to branch away from sex worker victims. They spotted Lisa Caston, a 21-year-old waitress driving home from work on November 6, 1977. When she stopped, they approached and claimed they were detectives investigating a nearby burglary. Her car looked an awful lot like the one seen fleeing the scene, so they needed to take her in for questioning. The case drew more attention than the first two because, for starters, Caitlin wasn't a sex worker. And secondly, a neighbor had vaguely seen the kidnapping, and what she saw led them to believe that whoever had stopped Lisa were police officers. That gave the real detectives the idea that whoever these men were, they might be pretending to be cops. It also marked a turning point because, by this time, police were sure they had a serial killer on their hands. As the coroner said, who was working with us on the case, as it looks like they came out of a Xerox machine. Uh, and they did. Other than the body size, they looked the same. The ligature marks were very unique. They're five-point ligatures, meaning the neck, each wrist, and each ankle. 
After Lisa, the men used their fake cop ruse to approach another woman with the aim to kidnap and kill. After asking her for identification, she presented a wallet. In the wallet, along with her identification, was a photograph of her as a youngster on her father's knee. And anybody that's grown up in this area or familiar with movies recognized Peter Laurie. Discretion, the better part of valor, they decided they'd back off this one and let her go. Peter Laurie, by the way, was best known for his role as a serial killer in a movie called M. He was also in Casablanca. The woman, Catherine Laurie Baker, wouldn't learn for more than a year that she had narrowly escaped death. By mid-November 1977, Los Angeles was on edge. It was well known by then that someone was killing young women and that the killing seemed to be linked. Then, over Thanksgiving week, five bodies were found, including the two youngest victims the spree would claim. 12-year-old Dolores Cepeda, who went by the nickname Dolly, and 14-year-old Sonia Johnson were discovered in a trash heap on a hillside near Dodger Stadium. The two had disappeared about a week earlier. They'd last been spotted talking to two men inside of a two-tone sedan. The girls' bodies were found by a nine-year-old boy who'd gone treasure hunting in the trash heap. The same day those girls were found, so was 20-year-old Christina Weckler, an honor student at the Arts Center College of Design. According to O'Brien's book, police were buoyed after finding that Christina had hypodermic needle marks in her arms because, even though it was immediately clear she'd been raped and strangled, it was easier for detectives to emotionally detach from a drug user. Turned out, though, that Christina wasn't a user. Her killers had simply escalated things yet again, this time injecting their victim with Windex during their assault. Some of their subsequent killings would include other various methods of torture. Evelyn Jane King, who went by Jane and whose death we discussed in the intro, was murder victim number six. The circumstances of her death were toughest for police to determine because, unlike many of the other women, she'd been obscured in bushes, which meant decomposition was pretty advanced by the time her body was found. 18-year-old Lauren Wagner was almost to the home she shared with her parents when Bono and Bianchi snatched her. Her car was discovered with a door ajar right across the street from her folks' house. A neighbor said she saw the abduction and could tell that it involved two men, one taller and young, the other shorter, older, and with bushy hair. Lauren had tried to fight but was forced into the men's car as she screamed, "'You won't get away with this!' The witness had herself been assaulted earlier in her life and emotionally shut down when she saw this. She wouldn't come forward until later, after Lauren's body was found. When it was, police noticed something strange on the corpse. Lauren's hands appeared to have been burned, and there was residue left behind on the burns. There's still adhesive on her hands where tape had been placed and attached uh, or stuck to the adhesive or some fibrous material. It reminded detectives of the fiber that had been discovered on Judith Miller's eye. Two more victims followed, Kimberly Martin, age 17, and Cindy Hudspeth, 20. Kimberly was a sex worker who worked for an agency because she thought it was safer. It so happened that Bono and Bianchi used that agency to get a woman sent to an abandoned apartment where they killed and tortured Kimberly before dumping her body. 
Cindy Hudspeth happened to simply want car work done. She swung by Bono's shop on February 16, 1978, and was talking business when Bianchi popped in. The two cousins had a side huddle, during which they decided impromptu to make Cindy their next victim. Because she had driven her car to the shop, they disposed of her in a different manner than was their usual method. They put her body in the trunk of her own car, then pushed the car off a cliff, where it was discovered the next day. Cindy would be their last kill as a duo, but she wouldn't be the last to die. Angelo Bono was tired of his cousin and killing partner, Kenny Bianchi. Kenny had made a few missteps that he considered risky. Of the two, there's no question Angelo was the more fastidious, the more cautious. He took great care to clean not only the bodies of his victims, but also his home, which typically doubled as the crime scene. Kenny took greater risks. Twice, he had led the duo to target women who lived in the same building as he had two different buildings at different times, so it wasn't immediately noticeable to police that there was a connection. But still, it felt risky to Angelo. When that address overlap did finally pique police interest, leading police to question Kenny twice about cases linked to the Hillside Strangler, Angelo exploded. How is it that I've never been questioned once, but you've been questioned multiple times? Kenny, meanwhile, was still hoping to get hired somewhere as a police officer. He even applied in Glendale, the very town in which he and his cousin were routinely killing women. This is Bianchi explaining why he wanted to become a cop. I like to work with people, and I can't think of any job where you become more entitled to people in the law enforcement field. To the agency's credit, Kenny was not hired. But Kenny was seemingly relentless. He approached the LAPD instead, and while he wasn't hired, he was invited to go on a ride-along with officers, during which he asked to see some of the Hillside Strangler dumping sites. Bono was not pleased. On the personal front, Kenny had been angling to marry a woman named Kelly Boyd for some time. Kelly had given birth to Kenny's son one week after he and Bono had killed Cindy Hudspeth, and while Kelly had considered marrying Kenny at some point, One night, he turned violent, and she moved with her baby to Bellingham, Washington, to be closer with her family. Bono saw this as an opportunity. He ordered Bianchi to move to Washington after his girlfriend. It'd be best for everyone involved, Bono explained. Their killings had become quite high profile, so the break would give them time for the heat to cool off. It'd give Bianchi a chance to get a steady job and focus on his new family. Oh, and also, Bono added, I will kill you if you don't. Bianchi obliged. In Bellingham, he got a job working as a security guard. He either couldn't resist killing, or he wanted to prove to himself that he could do it without his cousin's help. So he lured two young women to a house he knew would be empty by promising them extra money in a sort of house-sitting gig. When the women arrived, he lured them one at a time to the home's basement, where he swiftly overpowered and strangled them. He'd counted on getting away with it, but it turned out that one of the women had been cautious enough to alert someone about their plans to visit this house, and Kenny was picked up the very next day on charges of murder. Had there been no connection between Kenny and the hillside stranglings 1,200 miles south in California, 
there's a decent chance he never would have been linked to the 10 cases that still haunted residents there. But there was a connection. Not only had Kenny been questioned in the Hillside murders, but the ID he had on him when arrested in Washington bore the address of his old apartment complex, which was also home to one of the Hillside victims. Kenny at first denied any involvement, but then he was interviewed by a doctor who specialized in multiple personality disorder who decided to hypnotize Kenny. And gee, what do you know? It turned out that Kenny wasn't always himself. This is the doctor, John Watkins, a professor of psychology at the University of Montana. After I examined Bianchi on March the 21st and 22nd, 1979, both in hypnosis and out of hypnosis, I concluded that he was definitely a true multiple personality case. In fact, one of the most clear-cut ones I had seen in working with that type of problem over many years. See, sometimes Ken wasn't Ken at all. Sometimes he was an entirely different guy, a guy named Steve. And Steve had a lot of stories to tell, which we'll delve into next episode. To research this story, I read contemporary news coverage and also Darcy O'Brien's book, Two of a Kind, which had a lot of great interviews and access, but also some flaws, in my opinion, which I noted during the episode. I also watched a few documentaries, including a PBS Frontline episode from 1984 that you'll hear more from next time. For the record, I wasn't expecting this to be a two-parter when I started writing, but the rest of the case and trial is too fascinating to be relegated to a footnote, and I didn't want to shortchange the victims any more than I have, which is frankly already more than I would like. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.